Hey, I know a lot of you came here today, uh, as has already been said, with troubles, with concerns, with worries. And I just feel I want to add to that and say, go deeper. Go deeper. This isn't in my sermon, but uh, a while back, a good friend, Mary Ponder, stood up here and preached about going into the river. She talked about how you stood in the edge of the river of the Holy Spirit and you're still in control. You can still get back on the bank. The scary part is when you go right into the river and your feet are no longer on the bottom and the Holy Spirit is carrying you along. When we sing songs about God, you're my obsession. Language like that is dangerous. (laughs) But it's where we need to go. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the ability to meet together like this. And I thank you more than anything else that you are here. Here to help. Here to be worshipped. Help us to do that today. Through the power of your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm going to talk to you about Paul before the Areopagus. So... Get comfortable. I'm going to tell you a story. History story. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day. And those who happened to be present with those And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Sounds like a few places I know of. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poems have said, For we also are his children. 
being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Turn around. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all mankind, all men, by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Let me put my sneering face on. And others said, well, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst. Important point, it doesn't actually record anywhere that he went back to those people who said, we shall hear you again concerning this. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite woman, or sorry, Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I love that. And as we unpack this today, you'll see what the power of the Holy Spirit can do through you, as it did with Paul. So today I want to focus on three natures. The nature of God, the righteous king who came to serve, not to be served. The nature of mankind, there are those who are mockers, the sneery face. There are those who are curious procrastinators, who said, we'll hear you again on this. And there are those who hear, believe, and obey. And then I'm going to talk about the nature of our response, personally. So before I move on to people's responses, I want to give you some background. Only then can you see how amazing Paul's defense of the gospel is. Actually, it isn't really even a defense. It's a full-on frontal attack. He was provoked by the idolatry in the city. Petronius, a contemporary writer at Nero's court, said, as a bit of a joke, that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Paul, as was his custom, went first to the Jews, perhaps to gain support for what was to come. We don't know for sure. Then he went to the Gentiles. But then he summoned to the Areopagus, or Hill of Ares, a place of judgment and discussion for these people. He was brought by the Epicureans, who were a well-known school of atheist materialists. Their belief was that mankind existed for its own pleasure. Does that sound familiar? Yep, they're still around. He was also brought by the Stoics. These people were severe and lofty pantheists, who believed there were many, many gods, who believed that the universe was under the law of an iron necessity that could not be avoided by we mere mortals. This necessity was to be obeyed, but was uncaring and personal. Pardon me if there's a little sarcasm coming up here. I'll just tamp that down a bit. We have, in effect, two groups. Pleasure and pride. Sound familiar? Yeah. They insulted him, but his response is marvelously clear and gentle. Please don't forget that this was a man that had at one time hated Christians. More on that later. 
So here he appeared in the seat of judgment, but he himself passed judgment. Speaking the truth in love, he starts by complimenting them on their devotion to so many deities. Then he proceeds to tell them about the unknown God because he understands that for all this, they still know that they lacked something. Something was missing. Just like all of us know deep down that we need God. Well, then he tells us the nature of God. The first thing, God is creator. In verses 24 and 25, he skillfully separates God from the universe, a thought alien to this audience. God created the universe. He is not the universe itself, separate from. He calls him Lord, sovereign over all, not a blind force or fate, but intimately involved with that which he created. Then he calls him uncontainable. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, so therefore no idol can contain him. He is not ministered to by men's hands. All sufficient. He needs nothing from us. I want you to pause there for a second. He needs nothing from us. More on that in a minute. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and just all round omni awesome. <laughs> he gave us everything and therefore is not dependent on us. From one man, he brought forth all of us. And if I had time, I'd expound on that, but that would take us at least another three weeks. You up for that? Oh, good on you. I'd meditate on that verse. There's a lot of wisdom there. All-powerful, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Here he masterfully takes down the Epicureans in stoic fate. Everything is in the hands of God, and we would do well to remember it because we're blinded by our own sin, and if it wasn't for his love for us, we'd never even be able to see him. In him we live and move and have our being, which means without him... Everything is pointless, a chasing after the wind. He's invisible, but knowable because of his love. And here he quotes the first half of the fifth line, word for word, of an astronomical poem of Aratus, a Greek. We are also his children. Turning it skillfully from its original pantheistic meaning to point to a personal relationship with God. He says he's merciful, overlooking our ignorance. And then he drops the hammer. God is to be obeyed. Unstoppable. He then brings the audience to the knowledge that judgment is coming and we must repent. God sent his son Jesus to save us and showed his divinity by raising him from the dead. And this is the point where they got nasty. So now they had to respond, just as we today too have to respond to this message. So here we get to the nature of mankind. There are those who hear and mock. You mock when you hear something and you fear it. Now, if you think that only happens out there in the world, no, it happens in the church as well. My wife one day turned around to me. She loves the fact that I always pick on her always halfway through a sermon. 
but it's always good. She turned around to me one day, we were thinking about going to China, and she said, I'm just going to check to see if there's any Christian schools in China. Well, I mocked. Christian schools in China? Are you kidding me? Two minutes later, she found one. (laughs) And we ended up working there for 11 years. We can mock. I mocked that day. I'm going to be honest with you. I mocked because I was very nervous about going to China. I even Googled to see whether they had potatoes there because I didn't think I could survive without potatoes. (laughs) I was very... (laughs) So mocking can happen in church as well. You mock when you cannot disprove what is spoken. You mock when you don't understand and don't try to understand. You know when you've lost the argument but you just don't want to give up? Yes. Sums up 34 years of marriage. (laughs) She's always right, people. Always right. Yeah. Gentlemen, always buy a good couch. Um, Because you're going to need it. Um, You mock when you're ready to risk everything, your whole life and future, rather than give up anything of your own self and self-will. So let's not be that. Been there, don't want to do it again. There are those who hear and procrastinate. You procrastinate when you're persuaded, almost, Need a little bit more? What's in it for me? You procrastinate when it's not a matter of two opinions, but something that will cost you some effort. I caught myself the other day on my way to my letterbox down a long driveway, and I saw my next-door neighbor up the front there, and I paused because I didn't want to have a conversation. Oh, bad Kirby. (laughs) Bad Kirby. Because it was going to cost me some effort, and they, they talk. They like to talk. Yeah, learn from my mistakes, of which there are many. You procrastinate when your mind is quite clear, but your heart will not make the commitment to act. You procrastinate when you know what is right, but you simply don't want to do it. Warning. This world is diseased with a passion for something new. We are often like children who toss our toys and minutes in favor of something new. Like fashion, where everything is just so last year. (laughs) Rather than buckle down to the work, we run after every new thing, every new idea, gulp, every new doctrine forgetting that the old doctrine has been set in the scriptures through the word immortal. And I'm sad to say that it's often why pastors die spiritually. They give up trying to satiate the voracious appetites of those who, instead of helping in the work, forever complain and seek something new and exciting. But that's not us, right? No. (laughs) Better not be, he tells himself. It is a disease that dwelt in the Areopagus and exists still today. The cure? Easy. Preach Jesus and him crucified, then go and do likewise with your own life. As my grandmother used to say, the devil makes work for idle hands. 
With that in mind, let us be group three. There are those who hear, believe, and obey. You believe when the Lord opens your heart to do so. It's a partnership with the power of the Holy Spirit. You believe when you feel that the things spoken are true to your need and are for you. You believe when you are given the revelation that Christ is enough and without him, you're nothing. Our whole worth rests on his love for us, which is something I wish my teenagers would get hold of. No one else's opinion but God's matters. So let's look at the nature of our response. Are we mockers, curious procrastinators, or obeying believers? Putting my hand up, I can be all three in one day. If we come as a mocker, we will not obey. We will attack and try and put it down. If we come as a curious procrastinator, we will not obey. We will just watch. Someone else will do it. If we come to hear, believe, and obey, then we ourselves are revived spiritually. As we go deeper, so we become stronger through the power of God. No amount of prayer and Bible study will bring personal revival without the person who is doing the prayer and Bible study being changed. Obedience to God's word and leading brings change as you act your way into a new way of thinking. Faith without works is dead. We need a focus for our beliefs or else they're going to stagnate. We need to put legs on what we believe by doing things. And in that, the cycle continues, we go deeper, we get stronger, we find life, hope, and purpose. Think of it like this. Faith is like a rope. I can say, I believe in the rope. But then God calls me to the edge of a cliff. Do I really believe in the rope? Am I going to go down the cliff on a rope out of my comfort zone and be a little bit frightened? You don't know how much you believe in the rope until you use it. Mm. Do we pray to change God's mind? <laughs> Better to pray so that God will change our mind. Do we just read the Bible for what we can get from it? Better to also read it to receive from it what God wants to give to others. Do we worship God in spirit and in truth? If so, we need to act. Our actions are worship as well. They have to be because God doesn't need them. Confused? Let's unpack this by considering who Paul was and his response to Jesus. He was a man who had spent his whole life defending a way of salvation, a way of acceptance with God that basically said, if you want to be right with God and have eternal life and everlasting joy with him, then take the law of God, put it on like an ox wears a yoke, pull your own weight, and show God that you're good enough to go to heaven. And then Paul heard the message of Jesus and was rapturous with joy. In this message, two verses stand out as the essence of why Paul had hated this message and felt so threatened by it. 
verses 24 to 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, this is the worst news and the best news in the world. If you feel strong and self-sufficient and morally in sync with God and able to serve God and make independent contributions to God and his work, then this is bad news. When Paul says God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, in other words, if this message is true about God, then self-sufficient people who think they can negotiate with God are just kidding themselves. This is what threatened Paul in those early days and made him hate Christianity. He was a successful Pharisee. God needed him, not the other way around. Mark 10.45 goes like this. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is what Paul struggled with, and this is what we struggle with. We should take heart from Paul's victory, because it can be our victory too. Does God need our prayer? Or do we need to pray to come in line with his will? Should we listen more than we speak when we pray? I need to do that. I talk too much. Does he need our service? Or do we need to serve him for our sake and for the sake of others? Is it our life, hope, and purpose that we're finding in serving him? Because it's our purpose. Does he need our obedience or do we need to be obedient for our sake and for the sake of others? That's a bit of a rhetorical question. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. What is it that we think we're giving to God? Isn't it a little bit arrogant that we believe he needs anything from us? God is God and we are not. So what is it being a Christian then? What is personal obedience and revival? What's the point of prayer, Bible study, church? The point is to glorify God. Glorify God, enjoy his presence, and make his name known. Glorify God, enjoy his presence, and make his name known because of all he does for us. The point is to become more like him so the world will see his majesty. And even then, it is through his grace that he works in and through us. He is sovereign and could make his known, name known at any time. Being a Christian, being in personal spiritual revival is simply this. Getting up each morning and saying, God, you are everything to me. You are first. You are not second or third. You are everything to me. May my life reflect your majesty. God, you are Father, Adonai. El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Elyon, the Most High, El Olam, the Everlasting, Jehovah Jireh, the Provider, Jehovah Nissi, our Banner of Victory, Jehovah Shalom, our Peace, Jehovah Sabbath, our Captain, Jehovah Mekedeshim, our Sanctifier, Jehovah Roy, our Shepherd, Jehovah Sekenu, our Righteousness, Jehovah Shema, God here with us, Emmanuel, the God who serves and saves us. You appoint our comings and goings. In you we live and move 
and have our being. So let us decide today that despite the mockers, despite the procrastinators, despite a world that seeks to ignore, we will praise our Savior. And we will be seen doing it. Paul stood at the Areopagus, the seat of pagan judgment, and proclaimed, God reigns. He did it with love and compassion. He did it because they needed God. What about us? Will we mock the world who needs a savior? Will we laugh at them, steeped in sin, judge them, despise them, forgetting our own past and where we've come from? Will we procrastinate about going to a world who needs a savior? Will we, out of fear or apathy, leave them to die a godless death and to go to a Christless eternity? Will we obey and go to a world who needs a savior speaking the truth in love? Will we revive ourselves and start a flame that others are drawn to? Will we realize that God doesn't need our service, but we need to serve him to fulfill what we were created for as a physical manifestation of his majesty to a world that cannot yet see him? Can I ask the musos to come?